Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Welcome for those joining us in person or online. We're glad to have you here. If you're a visitor, just know that our whole aim and goal, as Eric said earlier, was to make Jesus a hero. So it's not about any one person or, or any individual ministry that's being built up, but everything we do is, is pointing to what Jesus did in human history. He, he is the true hero of all of human history. We have a lot of um, heroes in our society, like as far as our, our culture. I think what's, what just came out, Loki, over the week, which is an anti-hero. But the, the superhero culture and our, our, our culture is kind of strong. And that's kind of a been, been a thing throughout all of human history. People have looked to people to emulate and magnify and, and look to strive to be like. But all of, them, uh, all of them are fake or false. But even in the portrayals of the superheroes we see in the movies, oftentimes have different faults and flaws. Whereas uh, Jesus was the, the perfect God man who came and did and fulfilled his purpose as a human perfectly. And so we look to him and we, we build up uh, his name and what he's done, not us. And that's why we exist. Um, if I didn't say this before, I, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word. We have been, as a church, going through a series in the book of Judges. And we're taking a three-week pause on that. We're in the second week of that pause. We have one more week where we're taking three weeks to reflect on the idea of rest. And typically, we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it for a very specific purpose. There's a lot of reasons. One of the main ones is we, we want to be faithful to the text. And it's really hard to manipulate the text when you're going through it verse by verse and not shying away from different things. And so we're trying to be faithful expositors of the word of God, faithfully drawing stuff out of it, going verse by verse. Um, sometimes we like to take a break and look at some themes in the Bible. And this is one of those times where we're going to stop and look at the idea of rest. And Rick came up with the idea as far as an overall theme or idea to help us as we go through this is rest not just a suggestion. So it's just not a good idea or something that God says you might try sometime in your life. Maybe it'll bring you some kind of uh, relaxation or peace, but it's, it's a command. It's something we need. I talked about last week that God has actually built it into creation. It's actually a part of it with the Jubilee year and helping the Israelites get back on track with the solar calendar and even the seven-day week cycle and that day of Sabbath rest and the fact that every single animal in existence has to sleep. It has to take some form of rest. So God's built it into creation. He's commanded it. There's a lot of different things. Um, so today we're going to be continuing the, the theme of rest and looking at that. And we're going to be in Matthew 11, 25 through 30. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up, look at it with me. Uh, if you have it on your phone, pull it up and follow along. One of the things that the Apostle Paul kind of charged with the church, um, he, he gave some very strong and harsh rebukes towards those who would bring in false teaching. But what's surprising when he talks about that, he lays a bit of the burden on the people. He talks about how we put up with false teaching readily enough. So it's, it's crucial that you follow along with me in the Bible and be partakers in what we're doing here and examining the scriptures and drawing from them and seeing how they apply to our lives uh, as, as those that would hold me accountable and other preachers that would come and stand behind this pulpit and hold them accountable to the word of God that they're being faithful to what's in the text. So we're looking at rest, 
We'll explore the text together. I'll read it. We'll pray. I'll give us some context because we are just kind of jumping into a passage that we haven't been covering in a while. We're just jumping right into Matthew 11, 25 through 30. So we'll do that. Let me read the text and then we'll dive in. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you this morning for your, your word and this place that we get to come together and see what you have to say about rest. Many of us struggle with this idea of rest and stopping from what we're doing uh, just to take a break and realize that we're not in control, to trust in your sovereignty, to trust in your goodwill towards us. Um, I pray that you would help us not just see this in the text, not just uh, hear about it, but also live it out. Uh, live out the kind of rest that demonstrates a faithfulness in your gospel and what you've done in the gospel and saving us and, and doing the work and bringing us into our eternal rest. God, we need help in this area, especially uh, uh, as those of us living in, our, in this current culture, um, and just pray that you'd help us. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. I said this last week. In, in a bit of a way, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to speak on rest uh, as Nicole, as I said, Nicole says, I'm often very restless. Um, I, you know, what's funny yesterday, I was going to take a nap on the couch, if you remember, and how long did that last before I said, I'm going to go mow the yard. I, <laughs> I was there for like five minutes trying to just, we had a very busy day, took the kids to a park, had a birthday party and the kids just absolutely wore me out. Uh, just being out in the sun. And I was like, I'm going to close my eyes for five minutes. And th that did not happen at all. But also at my last place of employment, I forgot to mention this last week, I actually burned, didn't use, it was 75 days of vacation. Two months and a half, yeah. Uh, so 15 days I just lost because I couldn't carry them over into the next year. And then the other 60 days, I just sold it back to the company uh, for money. So in a sense, I'm a bit of a hypocrite saying you guys should rest because I'm one of the most restless people I probably know. Uh, even in my work, I wasn't able to take the days that they had given me. And oftentimes I felt guilty about the, at first I think it was 15 days for paternal leave that they would give me. And I, I felt guilty. But some of that's part of our culture too. Like my boss gave me grief sometimes about taking that paternal leave. Uh, I think she even said like, she was like, didn't you just have a kid? Or And I get we have a lot of kids, uh, you know, but she was like, didn't you just have a kid? And made me feel guilty about taking the time that they had given me. So, um, but that, that's part of our culture. That's part of the Western culture, the, the striving, this working, kind of earning your way and your worth through your labor and what you do. Uh, oftentimes we even introduce ourselves by what we do as Americans. We, you know, we say, uh, you know, I'm Bob and I, you know, lay brick for a living or work in this field of construction, or I'm a lawyer, or I'm a doctor, or I'm a dentist. Oftentimes when I meet new people, this is how they kind of introduce themselves to me. So we even kind of define ourselves by what we do, which is interesting as we come to this passage. So as a main point, before we dive in, last week I gave kind of four points, four separate points. Today I put those four points and put them into kind of a sentence. So there's still four points, but the main point of today's sermon is God gives wisdom and understanding according to his goodwill, so that we may know him and experience, 
experience rest in and through Jesus Christ. God gives wisdom and understanding according to his goodwill so that we may know him and experience rest in and through Jesus Christ. Some context. We're jumping into this verse. We, we haven't explored this passage. Uh, we haven't been in the book of Matthew. We're just jumping in right into chapter 11. This passage comes on the heels of when Jesus sent out the 72 disciples to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And now the disciples returned to Jesus and they're boasting about what they were able to do and what they were able to accomplish. If you're wondering where I'm getting this, if you're looking at Matthew 11 right now in your Bible and you're like, I'm not, I'm not seeing this, there's a parallel account in Luke 10 that covers some of this stuff. So this same prayer is also covered in Luke 10. And prior to that, we see that this is when the disciples are returning and they're rejoicing. Now, Jesus encourages them in everything that they had done. He, he, you know, he says, yes, you know, you have these power over these spirits. But then he says this in Luke 10, 20, in reference to all the work that they had done out and they had gone and done out for the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus says in response to their boasting. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying, don't rejoice in what you've done don't rejoice in what you will do, even for the kingdom of God. Even though these are good things that I've commanded you go do, don't rejoice over these things. But rejoice in the fact that God has established your eternal residence and rest in heaven. Rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in what you've done. Don't boast in your work, your efforts, what you may do in the future, even though it could be for the kingdom of God. But rejoice and honor and praise God for the rest that he's bringing you into. And then he begins to pray in Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. Look at verse 25 in Matthew. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Jesus begins to praise God in this moment for, for demonstrating his sovereignty and his power over all things and shaming what the wisdom of the world, what people perceive as wise and beautiful understanding and God taking this and revealing this to children, the, the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of human life, the purpose behind it all, taking it and giving it to the disciples. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. God oftentimes takes the foolish option to, to shame the wise. He oftentimes uses the weak to shame the strong. In, in magnifying and glorifying God's power, he does these things. We just saw this recently. I mentioned this last week in, the, in Gideon, in, this, in the story that Rick, I think Rick just covered uh, in the book of Judges. God looks at Gideon's army and he says, this is too many people. You go out and you fight this battle with these many people. I know you're going to come back boasting and said that you did this in your own strength. Let me take some more people away from you. All right, this is too many. This isn't enough. You're still going to boast in what you've done. He dwindled them down to where, um, has anybody ever seen those like online battle simulators we have now? Has anybody ever seen those? Or people like set up, you've seen some of those? Or they, they create like fake armies or whatever and make them battle and they do calculations to see, all right, who would have won this fight? You know, they'll take like the 300 Spartans and do some kind of like against the Persians. If you would have taken the simulation that God had set up and put that into the battle simulator, it, it would have been impossible. God gives them such a small amount of people. It, you could have run that battle simulation and it, the odds would have been infinitesimally small. It would have been 0%. They would have had no chance. It would have taken a divine act, some divine intervention for them to win that battle. 
And so God shames their enemy in using the very weak and small armies of Gideon to destroy their opponents and send them out. And so God is doing the same thing here, except for it's, it's with wisdom and understanding the way that things are. People can boast in their power and their work and all that they have accomplished for what? For what end? Consider something like Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves together and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. That probably sounds like people in every day and age, but I think we can, we can draw some connection to even our own day and age where we see people talking about breaking off the bonds of Christianity or this old way of thinking, these unwise, what were they, nothing but sheep herders? What do they possibly know about the deep secrets of the universe? And let's cast off these old ways of living. And what does God say in Psalm 2 verse 4 in response to people thinking that they're wise in their own eyes? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. God sees the work of so many people striving and working as if he doesn't exist or even worse against his purposes. And he laughs at the vanity of it all. I mean, what's the point of any of our efforts detached from God? Won't it all crumble away tomorrow? How much more so for those that have come against God? How many men have wasted their intellect and supposed understanding to come against the purposes of God? Take this for example. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Roman Emperor Julian. You've heard of, the, not Julius Caesar, but Julian. Has anybody heard of the Roman Emperor Julian? That's because you go to Gutenberg. <laughs> and your college specifically studies that. Have you, have you heard his book, Refutation of the Christian Religion? Did you read it? Okay, so out of this entire room, I understand this is mostly Christians, but an entire room, nobody has read this book that was supposed to destroy the Bible, his own words. And where has it gone in the pages of history? Not a single one of us have even heard of the Emperor Julian, let alone read his book that was supposed to destroy the Bible. Most of us have probably heard of Voltaire. Who's actually read anything from Voltaire? Two hands. What did he say 250 years ago? In 100 years, nobody will believe in the Bible. And where is he in his works? Burned up. I understand, once again, this is mostly Christians, but nobody's even read anything from Voltaire. If you're a philosophy student, probably because you were forced to in class. But how many of us would have gone out of our way to read his works? Bertrand Russell, Why I'm Not a Christian. Anybody read that book? That was less than 100 years ago. Russell, Hitchens, Dawkins, Harris. These are, these are famous atheists of our own day and in recent years. Which of their works will be left 500 years from now? All of it will be dust and vapor. Absolute vanity of vanities. All this work striving against the purposes of God. For what? to have their works burned up into nothingness over the passage of time. But our work could be fruitful. Our work could serve a purpose that goes far beyond our small blip of a life here on earth. If only we didn't walk in such a foolish manner, supposing to be wise, all the while rejecting the God who gave it all purpose and meaning in the first place. There's nothing inherently wrong with striving to understand the world around us, even something like science, which is a methodology. It's just a way of understanding the world around us. None of these things are wrong. But to think we're wise, living without God will leave us exhausted as we're ultimately humbled by God and the wisdom that he here reveals to children. We could spend so much of our time and effort trying to understand the secrets of the universe, the purpose behind humanity where God takes it and reveals it to people who are willing to submit and humble themselves to the word of God he's given us. And this year, 
when it talks about children, it's not talking about young, little children. The disciples were not children, but he's talking about those who humbly submit to God for understanding they're dependent upon God as my children are, especially considering the idea of rest. If my children, I set aside, me and my wife, and our, our wisdom as parents, we set aside time for them to nap. We have bedtimes where they go to sleep. If I didn't do this, they would run themselves into a wall until they eventually passed out on the middle of the floor. And, and what's worse, the very next day, they would wake up and they'd be disgruntled. They'd be angry. They'd be little brats. But I allow periods of rest for them. I tell them, hey, you need to go to sleep. You need to rest. And they're dependent upon me for that instruction so that they could get the sufficient rest that they need to go out and enjoy the next day. If only they'd show me the same mercy. So, so when he's saying little children here, he's talking about those dependent upon God for their understanding. So God keeps us from vain work. Everything that the disciples went out and did would have been ultimately meaningless to detach from God. And there, there is no rest and vapor work in vain work that doesn't serve any purpose and no end. In verse 26, Jesus says, yes, father, for such was your gracious will. It was God's will that he would deliver the mystery of the gospel to his children. In Isaiah 46, God says he declares the end from the beginning. The story has been written as it says, uh, not just that he says, my purpose shall stand None will come against me. Job 42 says much of the same, that no one can thwart God's purposes. Because of this, I must reiterate, our work will be fruitless and vain, separated from God and devoid of any hope of rest in this life or in the one to come as we define ourselves by what we do and try to find who we are in all that we labor and strive for. But God was pleased concerning this gospel that he had gave us, the rest that he had sent Jesus to initiate for his people, to bring us into, God was pleased to see all these things happen for his people. As it says in Isaiah 53.10, like everything that Jesus did when he came to this earth to die for his people and give them rest, this brought God much pleasure. It was part of his desire and his will for his people was to see you saved it's a good thing that the only true and living God is gracious. He, he really had no reason to be. Uh, there was nothing special about us other than the image of God that he had placed on us that set us apart from every other lump of dirt in existence. And we have scorned his grace in living uh, in our own way, scorning his, the life that he had given us, the provision, the gospel, rejecting him, choosing sin again and again. There was no reason for this to be a part of his gracious will to, to reveal this understanding to his children so that it wouldn't have to work in vanity and experience rest and know God. Look at verse 27, that we could actually come to be in relationship with God. All things, it says in 27, have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So strive all, the, strive all you may want, Try as hard as you can, spend countless hours trying to discover how it is that you can come to know God, how it is you can come to know everything. The answer is in this passage. How do I know God? Verse 27. According to verse 27, what do you have to do in order to know God? Not know about God, not know facts about God, but experience and know him relationally. Where are you in verse 27? The passage here in the Greek uses Udes and Udetis to describe who knows the Father separated from, separated from Jesus or the Father. It is no one, not anyone, 
two absolute universal negatives to speak to the impossibility of understanding and knowing God without his gracious will reaching out to you. Until the end of verse 27, we see that the anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him, that is us. If Jesus chooses not to reveal the father, who knows the son? Udes, no one. And who knows, who, who knows the father? Not anyone. Try as you might by your efforts, what you think may be wise decisions regarding your life and the one to come, apart from Jesus choosing to reveal the Father to you, you will not know him. Becoming a Christian requires submission to God, submitting yourself to God for salvation in everything. Some of you, I, I don't know if anybody is, but um, if anybody is familiar with the religion of Islam, do, they, do you know what Islam means? Does anybody know what Islam means? Submission to God, exactly. Here is what submission to God looks like in the religion of Islam. Follow the straight path, read the Quran, apply the teaching to the Quran and the Hadith, reject temptations, accept all that happens is Allah's will, daily prayer, the five pillars, some of which include alms to the poor, fasting and a privilege to the mosque in Mecca, if you can afford it. Now I've never done MMA, but Rick has. And I wish he were here to ask him if that looks like submission. Does any of that striving and working look like submission? Does it look like submitting yourself to God? When you tap, I don't know if anybody watches mixed martial arts or anything like this, but when you tap, when you, when you submit to your opponent in mixed martial arts, you're admitting defeat. You've come to the end that all you can do and you realize this wasn't enough. And so you submit, you give up. A huge blow to a fighter's pride and no doubt to our own is when we come to the end of who we are and we admit that we need God for his salvation. We need his rest. This is what submission looks like. Our salvation from start to finish relies upon the grace of God and our humble submission to his will. We, we, we humbly submit to him revealing himself to us, him softening our hearts and his grace that will keep us, which will bring us into heaven, but also keep us forevermore. There's nothing that we could do in all of our striving to enter into any of those things, but it is truly submitting ourselves to what God has already given us freely in his grace to receive those things. So who do we look to for salvation? For a rest from striving and struggling to earn our place in this life and the one to come. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember that Jesus is praying this prayer right after his disciples just got back from what was essentially a missions trip. Jesus sends them out to preach the kingdom, the, the gospel of the kingdom, and they come back. A successful mission trips, mind you. So they, they did very well. Apparently, they were boasting and everything that happened. And every Christian has a ministry. If, you're, if you believe in Jesus Christ, for salvation, you have a ministry. You don't have to work and receive a paycheck from a church or any other parachurch organization to be on ministry. You, you minister to those around you as you love, serve, and most importantly, share the gospel with other people. You are on mission. But more important than your work for the kingdom of God is your place in it. It has been established and fixed by Jesus. We don't work and strive to no end. We don't work and strive without any hope that will our efforts produce anything valuable in the future? We don't, we don't work without any prospect of hope. We work in establishing the kingdom of God here on earth now, knowing that God the Father knows us and has our names written in heaven already. And, and this, is, this is incredibly important. 
you could fail at every single endeavor you partake in in this life. And none of it will be in vain if your name is written in heaven already. You could experience the worst of failures. You could, you could fail miserably at being a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a son, an employee, a boss, and yes, even a pathetic excuse for a Christian. And you can still come to Jesus for rest for your labor and your heavy burdens. His victory is our victory. And in that we find rest. This is why in verse 29, Jesus is able to say to take his yoke. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, how is it that you could find rest for your souls? If your ability to enter into the kingdom of God and stand before God justified one day was, was determined by what you do in this life and your own merits and your own work. If I was to seriously say that, that one day uh, you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account for every single careless thing that you've done and every single thing, and, and there is no scapegoat. There is nobody else you can point to. There's no substitute. You just have to stand there and justify yourselves before the thrice holy God who's created all things and given uh, uh, certain parameters for how to live life. He's given laws and commands, and now you're going to explain to him why you uh, didn't follow them, why you didn't live in a way that honored God. Would that bring rest to your soul? Would that bring rest to anyone's soul? Jesus says that if we come to him, we find rest for our souls because he— this is clearly an allusion to the gospel that we, we receive rest for our souls, knowing that when we stand before God, we will have a scapegoat. We will have Jesus Christ as a covering. We stand in his identity at the throne room of God, being able to rest in what he's done. And when he came and lived as that perfectly obedient son, we now stand before God as that perfectly obedient son. And he welcomes us into the family of God, not based on our own merits, but what Jesus Christ has done for us. The heavy and burdensome life of self-righteousness isn't just soul-crushing, it's soul-destroying. There's no rest to be found in it at all. You will be crushed and killed completely and try to carry the burden of a works righteousness with you into heaven. I saw this picture the other day. This was the most profound, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, most profound meme I have ever seen in my life. Who's seen The Lord of the Rings? I hope a lot of people have. Good, good Christians. Just kidding. Um, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Um, but anyways, there's a scene where Frodo says, he leaves Sam behind. He says, I'm going to Mordor. And, and Sam's following him and he goes, of course you are and I'm coming with you. And maybe some of you guys have seen this meme. Frodo's saying, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to Mordor, except for somebody took the meme and, and made Frodo faith. And it said, I'm going to heaven. And then Sam comes along and it says works. And it says, of course you are, but I'm coming with you. And I was like, whoa, that is a really good explanation of the Christian life and faith and works and that, that weird relationship that we see in, in the epistle of James, if you know what I'm talking about. That, that confusion in the Christian life where they're saying, well, do I work and earn my way into heaven? Because James says faith without works is dead. And, you know, it, it's this kind of confusion amongst Christians. I was like, wow, that was actually a really good Understand, I was like, whoever made this picture really understands the relationship between our faith and our works. So Frodo is saying, like, he has faith. He's like, I'm going to heaven. And works is coming saying, I know you are, but I'm coming with you. To say, uh, we don't just say, I'm not working at all. I'm never doing any good deeds. It's just free grace. And Jesus has done everything and brought me into the kingdom. And there's nothing I ever have to do. I have no responsibility to God. I just got my ticket punched for heaven. But 
Faith is what ushers and propels us into the kingdom of God, and our good deeds are what follows us in that process. It's nothing that's bringing us into the kingdom of God. We're not going to do a bunch of good things, and that's going to earn our place into heaven, but it will necessarily follow with God's people as faith in Christ, as the object of our faith, propels us into heaven. I need to bring that picture sometime and show that here, because it was a really good understanding, uh, so well articulated through a, a silly internet picture. But, but that, is, that is the Christian life. It is faith that brings us into God. It is, it is the resting in what Jesus has done for us that ushers us into the kingdom of God and brings us peace in this life. So if you want rest for your soul in this life and in the one to come, consider deeply what Jesus says in verse 30. For my, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of Christ is one of freedom. We'll close with this. The yoke of Christ is one of freedom, and his burden is our salvation. To take upon the yoke and burden of Christ is to place yourself in him. It was earlier said uh, in, in the prayer and worship that we have an identity in Christ. The sin that enslaved us and the burden of the law have been broken so that we could take on the identity of Christ and experience freedom from sin and this desire for obedience to God. Nothing we could have ever done. We take upon the work that Jesus has done for us by placing our faith in him, and we rest in that and find rest in this life and the one to come. Amen? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this. As it was said before, from the moment our feet hit the ground, we're trying to justify our existence and are so quick to defend ourselves, whether it's against our spouses. Um, we, we just seek to earn our place in this life and in the one to come, God. We, we try and strive foolishly ignoring what you've, the rest that you've given us in the gospel. I pray that we, we would take hold of this today, that we would demonstrate a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, that we would rest and cease from our desire to, to earn our own salvation. And that we would experience the peace that this brings, that we could take a breath, that the weight of the world doesn't have to be placed on our shoulders, God, that Jesus took that weight as he went to the cross. Thank you, God, for doing that. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.